Hello, I'm John Steele of Cafe Direct, and this is the Building Better Business podcast, a podcast that examines how business can and needs to be more than just making money, unraveling how we create new business models to better serve our communities and the environment. This really is the future of how we'll do business and how we can all play a part. This week, I'm speaking with Mike Bream, the co-founder of Clipper Teas. Mike took a leading role bringing good quality ethical tea to the UK market, and Clipper is now the world's largest fair trade tea brand. Mike established Clipper in the mid-1980s, and as founder and MD, he ran the company for 25 years until 2008. Mike worked with the Fair Trade Foundation in their early days and defined what fair trade looked like in the tea industry. He'll share with us how he's seen fair trade tackle the extreme inequality that exists in tea communities and explain his passion for raising consumer awareness about the issue. I'd love to hear from you, Mike, about Clipper Tea and how it was founded, because it was founded, I think, seven years before Cafe Direct in 1984. I'd left school and joined the tea trade. I was just interested in being a food buyer and I managed to get a position as a trainee, as a tea taster tea buyer's assistant which is how you do train in that world and I spent a few years in 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 London where I'm from and learned all the ins and outs of tea buying tea tasting tea sorting uh, grading and then in about 83 84 I I decided uh, I wanted to work for myself so I thought well you know I'm in the world of tea and I'd seen that there wasn't a lot going on in the UK in terms of high quality tea there was a lot in Europe, it was still a niche market in Europe, but it was much more interesting and much better quality. So I just thought, well, I, you know, I could, I could do a better job of this. I could sort of start small, and, and of course, in the naivety of being twenty and not knowing any of the problems I was going to be facing, I was full of the joy of enterprise. I think I came unstuck at about after about five minutes, but uh, <laughs> then I was off. I'd left the job, so I had to make it work. That's how Clipper started. It was, it was very much a small business, a chest of tea, weighed up in the kitchen, small bags big bags taken around to whole food shops and getting the whole food shops who were weighing up rice and raisins at that time because they were kind of getting going you know they weren't quite sure there wasn't a lot of pre-packed product in whole food stores at that time so they were really keen to have new things they could they could weigh and and serve in that old-fashioned way so that was perfect for clipper perfect timing and really that that's how it started the naivety point is it's kind of paramount because I think without that, you sometimes wouldn't take the, the leap of faith to do something that can then become as wonderful as Clipper has. Oh, definitely. I, I think if you overthink it, you can talk yourself out of it very quickly. I mean, you, if you <laughs> see a, a gap, as as we did, which was really around why other people were doing it better elsewhere and why we weren't really interested in, in the UK or getting those products. You know, we, we started with single estate teas, which was people were saying to us, well, what is that? And this was a time when people weren't really even drinking wine. I think as a child, I remember my mother and father had probably tried three different wines and that seemed pretty exotic. You know, I remember the names of them. But by the early 80s, people were getting a bit more interested in in food. And there was always that group, that sort of people who will make a great effort to shop. So we could see that opportunity, see the gap, and then just find out what happens, which was what we did, which basically meant we didn't eat a lot. <laughs> When did it really take off? I mean, I know when you, when you look back at Cafe Direct's history, there were a number of years when it was a really small business and then it took off and then momentum really took over. When, when did it really take off for Clipper? It really got going in the 90s once we'd 
already established fair trade and organic products, but we weren't getting a lot of traction. We were trying to communicate to a relatively small group of consumers. And they were interested, but there weren't very many. And we were, as Clipper, we were always looking at innovation in the market. It's sort of an itch. I'm always looking at the next thing. And we brought out green tea uh, and we worked out that green tea was you know, clearly an important product, but it hadn't really taken off in Europe at all. I remember the Guardian newspaper did a few little articles on very, very small articles in the small print about... Uh, it was it was all to do with people in China having less cancer. And it wasn't saying anything except connecting the fact that they drink a lot of green tea. And this did a few of these small things. And, and suddenly we got this sort of surge of interest in our very small distribution of green tea. And, and that was what got us going. And we uh, it's amazing how that, that grew. Uh, and it was consistently the engine for the business. And that allowed us to do organic and fair trade because... Otherwise, we the market was so small, we wouldn't have been able to reach a momentum, I don't think, if we didn't have green tea behind the business. And 10 years after you started, Clipper was one of the three founding brands of the fair trade movement in 1994. What made you adopt fair trade and how did it feel at the time as a movement? We, we were worried about whether there was child labour in our product. And we were a very, very small business by 1990. We hadn't grown very much. And we set out to find some tea growers who were doing a great job. Uh, and there were a couple, uh, probably more than a couple, but we found a couple. Uh, and we were able to sort of satisfy ourselves from the work that they provided, that we could achieve a level of, let's just call it free of child labour, if you like. And that was kind of the tone and the conversation in the market at the time as well, is that was kind of the issue in the media. It wasn't about fair trade, it was about child labour. So we we did this and we, we worked out that we felt it was important to raise awareness of this. So we called Clipper the Ethical Tea Company, which is which was the strap line at the time. This is back pre-Fair Trade Foundation. And um, we ended up getting hold of the Fair Trade Foundation once they, just as they were starting and very quickly became their advisors on tea because really no one else was very interested in talking to them according to the fair trade foundation and we were trying to we were trying to do something so we were kind of welcomed and this is when the foundation was you know four people in a room with a with a bottle of water it was kind of at that level people had not created any of the infrastructure at all at that point so it was not difficult to choose probably unqualified tea people who just were willing to turn up and have a, you know, and try and work it out, if you like. Uh, and, and that was the kind of level of it at the time, lots of goodwill. And we found that there were some really difficult questions that the foundation, Fair Trade Foundation itself was trying to answer. And that within the movement of the trade, there was a lot of difficult questions around what fair trade is, because everyone can think, yeah, we know what it is. But actually, when you get down to it, what are you trying to achieve and what do people need? So that that work was done and we, we spent a bit of time helping that process along. As advisors to the Fair Trade Foundation, the Fair Trade Foundation was shooting high, it was aiming high. It wanted big brands to take a fair trademark. It worked out that if big brands could come on board, you could do a lot of things really quickly. And then quite quickly they realised that no big brands were going to touch it. There was one very big tea brand that was going to do fair trade tea. And so we were involved in the sense that we were helping work out ourselves what socio-economic justice is or could mean uh, in terms of tea plantations. And there was a brand about to launch. Um, they got cold feet at the last minute and pulled out. 
So we stepped in and said, well, we'll have a go. We're very small, but, you know, we need a tea. We've done all this Fair Trade Foundation, so we've done all this work. We decided we'd carry a Fair Trade marker on Clipper. Cafe Direct was being set up at the time, or had been set up, and Green and Blacks were just going to take a Fair Trade mark. It launched in 94 in the House of Parliament with uh, Peter Bottomley and Glenda Jackson, the actress. They were both MPs at the time. They passed an early day motion and uh, to put tea in House of Parliament cafe. That was basically what it was for. All fair trade products. Yes. yeah. That was passed. And the Daily Mirror picked it up next next day. I think we were on page three and then The Guardian. And quite a few newspapers ran with it and gave us some good picks. And it, it kind of got us going. And it, uh, and that was really the start, I would say. Um, not a very good answer to your, your direct question, but that was kind of the, the theme at the time. I was looking for the how it felt. And it's fascinating to hear how different it is today because nowadays you know the UK is the biggest fair trade market in the world and it's it's fascinating to hear your perspective that you know you were almost helping out a few people who were setting up fair trade and then to hear that Clipper became the first fair trade tea brand because somebody else pulled out it's it's a wonderful piece of kind of history to it all so and, and just and probably just just right as well isn't it really I mean it's it's perfect yeah it was great and of course it took a long time as well because once we did get the the, the mark on our product and, uh, and Cafe Direct and, and Green and Blacks are doing the same. We realised how hard it was going to be getting distribution in retailers. That then didn't follow automatically at all. You know, there, everything had to be earned every step of the way. You know, every, it was push, 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 push. In the end, you you founded Clipper and you ran it for 25 years until 2008. You know, what were the challenges over that time and what were the really delightful moments? What were the moments you look back on and think that was one of the most fantastic moments in your career? I think in terms of fantastic moments, when we approached tea plantations and said, we want to do fair trade with you, we want just to be something that it can happen, because they had to say yes, because a lot of them were worried. They were worried about industry pressure. It was quite controversial. There were all sorts of stories going around about how this was going to damage the trade. And uh, people were quite concerned that it would sort of expose things they to be fair, or fair is the word, to be honest, there were things in the industry that no one was looking at. People were just accepting that this is the way we do business and that there's a lot of poverty involved in the process. And that's it, open and shut. There wasn't a conversation outside of that. So when a couple of tea plantations, one in South India, one in Sri Lanka, said, you know, not only do we want to do this, we want to sort of shout about it because we want to get things we want to make things better and we see this as a great opportunity and that was that was a wonderful thing because suddenly everything could happen it was it really wasn't about what the fair trade foundation thought fair trade was going to be that's just part of the problem if you like it was really all about getting producers to say yes and engage and then they did the real hard work because they had to make changes and they were people really with lots of goodwill who weren't always sure that what they could see possibly as the european way was necessarily as sensitive to the cultural situation they were trying to address. So they had a lot of hard work to do. So that was that was wonderful when that happened. Another fantastic moment was I went to a tea plantation in Assam, which was organic, and then it originally come out of the jungle area. And there were quite a few, as you appreciate, Assam tea gardens in North India. And the first time I went to an organic tea plantation, I was amazed at the sound. Whereas a tea, tea plantations, tea gardens are beautiful and they're quiet and they're just lovely. 
But then when you go to an organic tea plantation, sat alongside the jungle, if you like, so you know there, there's a lot more wildlife around, and and it's noisy, and there's a huge amount of bird life. And then you, that was what struck me. That was a sort of moment where I, the penny dropped. I thought, actually, this is this is really important. Not it. It might look exactly the same, but <laughs> it sounds completely different. It sounds so different. And that that was amazing. Yeah, that was that was a total. Uh, a stunning moment if you like and then you, you that's the sort of moment you realize that actually this really matters you know and, and it's not just sort of doing a little bit better it's it's really important yeah it brings it to life doesn't it to, to actually feel and hear the difference in the in the landscape that's incredible you know one of the things about tea is you know women are hugely involved the, the majority of tea picking is done by women and um Yet, I think from what I can see, and I think from probably what you saw in the early days of Clipper, um, you know, the representation and the leadership and the engagement of women on tea plantations is probably has been far from how it should be. How have you seen that change and how does that need to change in terms of genuine representation of women in the tea industry? I think over the over the years, what we've seen, and certainly at the beginning, was that there, there were some fairly straightforward ideas about what fair trade means or should mean this is right back in the day and then there was the learning which is how you make it effective and I think people's ideas were transformed quite quickly because there were lots of really good people involved people of goodwill who really wanted to make a difference and they weren't going in being arrogant about fair trade they were just trying to get a set of standards to begin if you like and then found out that in fact you didn't really need to do a huge amount other than achieve representation so with tea, you get a minimum price and you get a social premium. That social premium is quite quite large in the scheme of things. It's it's uh, 50 US cents per kilo. And that builds up to be quite a significant amount. So it, it's not small differences. It, it makes a big difference. I mean, it, it, for example, it builds pension funds for everyone leaving the estate. It builds schools. It builds bridges children's education from, say, 14 to 16 and to 18 builds technical colleges, it builds all sorts of things that are quite big and they make a big difference. But what, what were the early learnings, if you like, or perhaps people didn't realise what it was going to take when they first got involved with fair trade and creating those fair trade environments was that the moment women who, as you say, are the mostly employed on tea plantations in those communities, the moment they have representation, everything works. All the priorities become natural and correct because mums know what they need. Uh, and those cultures often all, you know, same, same in the UK, are often male-led. And, and once you literally took the men out of the room and you had a democratic in a, uh, representation because women, there's more women than men, so you ended up with that balance. Sometimes in certain certain cultures you had to make sure there were no men in there if you like uh, to start with but but once women were felt able and they were able to decide where those funds went then everything just leveled out you know so you weren't there wasn't any trickle down there wasn't any building up it was just leveling and i found that to be uh, uh, talking about fantastic surprises that to me was the, probably the biggest thing i learned over the 25 years was that we weren't trying to make a difference by adding a bit of money at the top or trying to give it a little bit more cash at the bottom. We were, it was 
not we, but the fair trade activity is about levelling. And if you level it, you take away those inequalities. Really, you're trying to fix a broken system, which is the plantation system, which isn't the same in coffee, of course. It isn't the same system necessarily as much. That was a fantastic thing. And just seeing what, what people do when they feel able to have a voice and decide how to direct resources. Uh, and it's been quite amazing. It was absolutely amazing. I find... You know, the fact that less than 1% of tea in the UK is, is fair trade, I find it quite, you know, astonishing and incredibly disappointing. Why do you think, that, you know, fair trade hasn't been adopted at the levels it could have been, and I think probably should have been in tea? Early on, it was very clear that tea wasn't as sexy as coffee. And that people could relate to coffee, smallholder farmers, that there was a sort of halo around tea as something. It kind of comes from these lovely places where there's beautiful gardens and the images I've seen of tea, it's everyone's very happy and what's the problem kind of thing. And, and people don't connect, they didn't connect to tea in the way they could connect with a coffee story. And Cafe Direct did a fantastic amount of work to raise awareness around coffee and they spent well they got the right support we were very small so i suppose we couldn't sort of generate that kind of awareness i would say but even then it, cafe direct had the right ideas and i remember running a set of adverts cafe direct ran where they were really connecting to farmers and, and aspirations and, and that was really important and i think it got people really interested in coffee whereas tea always sort of came along behind and it is odd because with tea you can really make a big difference with fair trade because those plantation communities really do need the help. And there's a huge issue of equality and representation going on that isn't spoke about even 30 years later. So it does feel like a failure on our part that we didn't, as a tea brand, manage to really get it across to people. But equally, we felt that we were pressing against a, a, a certain sort of stereotype of tea being slightly perfect. We've talked in, in these podcasts about business models and about social enterprise and B Corps. And, you know, Clipper, clearly, you know, you set it up as, an, as, as the ethical tea company. What were the governance model components and the, and the financial structure like when you were setting up? And how did you look after that over, over the 25 years you were running the business? Well, Clipper was a very much straightforward commercial business. It didn't have any social enterprise aspect to it if you like we were simply on a mission to carry our message which was for people and planet which is the sort of the piece we wanted to to push and combine fair trade and organic and we were very focused on that and i think as a as, a, as an organization it was quite clear early on that whilst we were full of ambition and enterprise we didn't always have the right answers or the right background so so we set out to recruit good directors who had great experience not in our industry but just running businesses you know how to structure how to how to run the finances how to do it really well and and I've always been a bit self-conscious that if I'm not that sure about something I don't just ask my buddy I'll go and find someone who really does know what they're doing because uh, I'm sure there's things I don't know and that kind of worked out over over the years we ended up with some very good directors in the business who would really allow us to focus on things we wanted to do which was to create lots of new products and do more stuff with fair trade and organic um, and that was it really and, and eventually when the business was sold it was relatively easy because we didn't have a complex structure which I, I suppose is one one aspect of it. How did it feel 
selling the business that you've been running for 25 years. You've given birth to this business, Mike, and then run it for 25 yeah. years. How did it feel passing that on? Well, it was family reasons why we needed to, to sell the business. We then wanted to make sure that we wouldn't sell the business to another tea company. Uh, we didn't want to sell it to a business that would possibly take the business out of Dorset, which is where it's based, and it has a, it's in a small town. It's got a good production facility, it's quite large, and it had you know 100 people in there working, uh, and we didn't want to see that disappear. So in due course, as, as, uh, as it is today, Ecotone, who are now the owners of it, they maintain their business there, they've invested in that site, they've invested in the people, and as you say, they've got another, a whole range of brands, which are organic brands, and they're real sort of, you know, they're, they're really great business people, but they're also just a bit nuts, which is, which is fantastic, because you need to be a little bit... <laughs> Like you, John, with Cafe Direct. You've got to be a bit mad to do it. No, no thanks. Thanks for the compliment in there somewhere, Mark. Yeah. <laughs> Other than us all being a bit nuts, I mean, you know, you've been incredibly successful o- over the years. What would your advice be to anybody listening who wants to set up their own business and make sure it's a business with purpose? What would your advice be, Mike? I think the advice is probably the similar to to running any business uh, and any, pro- any product-based business, which is where I've got my experience. One of the things that strikes me nowadays more than ever before is that you, you know, the things you choose to do or not do can make a difference. And those those little habits that you can form. So, you know, choosing between different products, choosing between different ways you travel um, and so on and so forth. Really, those little changes can accumulate to make a big difference, can't they? Yeah, this is not a small thing. And that's the problem. I think people think it is a small thing. They think they're making a bit of a difference and they're not. They're making a big difference. And that's the bit they don't get. You know, that that's the that's 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 the chasm, I think, if you like, in people's understanding is that they think that this doesn't really matter. My my packet of coffee is just a it's just a small pack of coffee. How can I be changing things with yeah, I get that it's small actions all build up and that's the state of mind and it's you know, and it absolutely is true. But I think it's the piece that they don't realise quite how big a difference it makes. Um, mm. So yes, it's a very small step, but you know, small small decisions, big changes, and that's that's the hard bit to communicate. You know, we, we you and I have had the benefit of being immersed in the environment that our products come from, and met all of the the people that the coffee growers and the tea pickers, and you know, you're you've had that firsthand. And if you're walking through Sainsbury's or Tesco's and you thinking about which coffee you don't really have that depth of <laughs> you don't have that drama you know you don't have that drama and you have that moment where you have to you know get on and make your make your call on what you buy thanks so much to mike bream for talking with us today and thank you mike for sharing some great stories that brings us to our last episode of season one so thank you so much for listening we hope you've enjoyed it as much as we have And we'll be back soon for another season. So make sure you subscribe and you'll never miss an episode. And if you've enjoyed the series, don't forget to rate and review. Bye for now.